Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project. The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG First within the OBG Resident Core. So you get OBG First for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye? Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the resident core over at the OBG project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG first, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying. Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, and by extension, OBG First, the OBG L&D ebook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we're back with another topic episode. We're going to talk about polyhydramnios. So, Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, a routine topic, but one that we definitely should have dove into a long time ago, Faye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, for learning objectives, first, we're going to talk about identification of polyhydramnios. We'll review the different possible causes of poly. Um, we'll talk about counseling patients on polyhydramnios, particularly depending on severity. And then finally, we'll talk about the management of polyhydramnios. For those of you looking to follow along with a bit of reading, we're referencing SMFM consult series number 46, which is entitled Evaluation and Management of Polyhydramnios. So, Faye, I guess let's go from here and answer the basic question. What is polyhydramnios? Yeah, so, you know, polyhydramnios or hydramnios is exactly what it sounds like. Poly, a lot. Hydramnios, which is fluid, right? So the definition is just an abnormal increase in amniotic fluid volume. And to define it more specifically using ultrasonography, it's when the single deepest vertical pocket or a DVP of fluid is greater than or equal to eight centimeters, or when the amniotic fluid index or AFI is greater than or equal to 24 centimeters. Poly can complicate 1-2% to of singleton gestations, but it's more common in twin gestations primarily due to complications of monochorionic placentation, so for example, TTTS. Um, and it's also important for us to know the degree of polyhydramnios. So it's divided into mild, moderate, and severe. So mild poly is when the AFI is between 24 to 29.9 centimeters, or if there's a DVP of 8 to 11 centimeters. And this is most cases of poly. So that'll be 65 to 70% of the cases. Moderate poly is when the AFI is between 30 to 34.9 centimeters or a DVP of 12 to 15. Um, and this is less common, about 20% of cases. And then severe poly is defined as an AFI of greater than or equal to 35 centimeters or a DVP of greater than or equal to 16 centimeters. And that's less common. So again, less than 15% of cases. Let's go down this pathway of what causes polyhydramnios, Nick, and then, you know, how do we counsel patients? Sure. So 
Most cases, Faye, as you said, that fall into that mild range are actually idiopathic ultimately. So we don't have an identified cause for them. Mm -hmm. um, but when an etiology is identified for polyhydramnios, the most common reasons are either a fetal anomaly or maternal diabetes. Now, when we think about anomalies, most of these have to do with swallowing issues. So one way that the fluid might build up is that the baby is not swallowing the amniotic fluid that's there. And so if you think about just sort of the things that might cause a swallowing issue, one big and easy one to think about is a GI obstruction of some sort. So duodenal tresias, tracheoesophageal fistulas, some sort of mass in the thoracic cavity, um, or a diaphragmatic hernia, something that's just basically blocking that flow of fluid down the GI tract. Another cause could be neuromuscular things. So again, if the baby doesn't have the neuromuscular framework to swallow, then you're going to have a trouble getting fluid through. And we see this in conditions like myotonic dystrophy, certain types of arthrogryposis, um, and then other things where intracranial anatomy is affected. And then finally, you can also think about it with a craniofacial issue. So particularly, you know, again, if there's trouble for some reason with the mouth or neck in the swallowing process. So cleft lip palates can cause this, micrognathia or a small jaw can cause this, and then a neck mass is sort of the other big category of things. So those are all swallowing issues. The other way that you can end up with polyhydramnios is because of excess urine production. So the baby is just peeing out an excessive amount of fluid. And this is fewer causes, relatively speaking. But if we kind of break it down again, well, why might we see that? Well, one could be some sort of renal or urinary cause. So UPJ obstructions, um, mesoblastic nephromas, barter syndrome. So kind of some of those more metabolic things might fall into that. From a cardiac perspective, we want to think about lesions that are leading to a high output cardiac failure. So the heart is pumping, pumping, pumping. It's pumping blood to those kidneys. Kidneys are filtrating quite a bit more. So cardiac structural anomalies can be associated with this. Um, tachyarrhythmias, and then other things that can lead to high output cardiac failure, like sacrococcygeal teratomas, choriangiomas, etc., can also be causes of um, polyhydramnios. The final category falls into what SMFM is termed osmotic diuresis or other category. Um, and these are sort of things that we mentioned earlier for idiopathic quote unquote reasons of polyhydramnios like maternal diabetes, hydrops fatalis sort of falls in between sort of this high output cardiac failure and osmotic diuresis depending on the cause of that, um, as well as just idiopathic mild hot polyhydramnios. In terms of thinking about evaluation from here, you know, we covered a number of potential etiologies. So certainly using the rest of your ultrasound aside from the fluid assessment is helpful. So kind of thinking about fetal growth, cardiac anatomy, looking at the placenta to see if there's a choreangioma or other mass. Um, you want to look at fetal movement overall to assess neurological function. You want to look at the hands and feet to look at arthrogryposis syndromes can look at the stomach um, and think about with that identifying tracheoesophageal fistula or esophageal atresia. I'm going to look carefully at the anatomy of the fetal face and palate. Um, looking at the neck, its appearance, its positioning to see if there might be an obstructing mass. Fetal kidneys should be looked 
looked at to assess for some sort of obstruction. Um, and the lower spine and pelvis should be evaluated as well for sacrococcygeal teratoma. Ultimately, basically, if you're finding polyhydramnios, particularly early on, you're doing a detailed assessment to be able to look through. Finally, no, I think in the initial assessments, patients may wonder, how worried should I be about polyhydramnios? Um, and again, most mild polyhydramnios is idiopathic or due to type 2 diabetes. With mild polyhydramnios specifically, there's only about a 6 to 10% risk of a fetal anomaly and a 1% risk of neonatal abnormalities. So again, overall fairly low risks, especially when you compare it with severe polyhydramnios. The risk of fetal anomaly with severe polyhydramnios can be as high as 20 to 40%, and a risk of neonatal abnormality as high as 10%. So certainly those who have severe polyhydramnios should be evaluated and probably delivered at a tertiary care center due to the concern for fetal or neonatal abnormalities. All right, so I think that gets through a lot of the evaluation, Faye, gets through a lot of the etiologies of polyhydramnios. Let's talk through some of the management now. Yeah, so I think to first think about treatment of polyhydramnios, we want to think about, well, there's this buildup of fluid. So is there any way that we can decrease that buildup of fluid? So the first thing to think about is if that polyhydramnios is severe enough to cause maternal respiratory compromise. So you can imagine if someone's got a poly of 40, that mm -hmm. fluid's really pushing up on the maternal lungs. If it's causing significant discomfort or preterm labor, most likely that type of poly usually has some type of underlying etiology. It's much less likely to be idiopathic. And in cases of severe polyhydramnios that results in maternal respiratory compromise or other discomfort, then we can consider amnio reduction if the patient is not near term. So that's really, you know, we're doing, it's like an amniocentesis. You put a needle into the pregnancy, you take out fluid. However, you do have to counsel the patient that even if you do that, the patient may temporarily feel better, but the cause of the polyhydramnios has not been addressed, and so the poly really can recur. And so this may be something that needs to be done every so often to relieve the discomfort for the patient. And of course, you want to counsel the patient that anytime you're sticking a needle introducing a foreign object into the pregnancy, that you're increasing their risk of potentially preterm labor, breaking their water early, or even chorioamnionitis. The other thing that people have looked into is the use of indomethacin because indomethacin has been shown to decrease fetal urine output. And there have been studies looking at women who took indomethacin after reduction to try and decrease the reaccumulation of the fluid and decrease the risk of needing to redo that reduction. However, preterm infants exposed to indomethacin in utero have decreased neonatal urine output, actually, and also can have elevated serum creatinines, and this can persist into the neonatal um, period. So indomethacin really should not be used for the sole purpose of decreasing amniotic fluid in the setting of polyhydramnios. Now, a lot of times people also want to know, well, what do I do in that antepartum period? And, you know, how should I counsel the patient about delivery timing? So studies have shown that idiopathic poly has been associated with infant birth weights of greater than 4,000 grams in 15 to 30% of cases. So certainly if the baby is, you know, macrosomic, uh, if we think that that EFW for the birth weight is going to be quite large, then we should counsel accordingly. 
Um, the reports of whether perinatal mortality is increased with idiopathic polyhydramnios have been overall inconsistent. So the current recommendation from SMFM is that antenatal fetal surveillance is not really required for the sole indication of mild idiopathic polyhydramnios. Um, and similarly, recommendation is that labor should be allowed to occur spontaneously at term for women with mild idiopathic polyhydramnios, and that if you're planning an induction, you really shouldn't do it at less than 39 weeks solely for the reason of polyhydramnios. Um, and then modes of delivery should be determined based on the usual obstetric indications. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this polyhydramnios topic. It really is kind of quick and basic. Um, so let's go ahead and summarize. Yeah, so we started talking about what is polyhydramnios exactly at the beginning of the podcast, an abnormal increase in amniotic fluid volume using sonograms defined as a single deepest vertical pocket of greater than or equal to eight centimeters or an amniotic fluid index greater than or equal to 24 centimeters. It complicates one to 2% of singleton pregnancies, but it's more common in twins. Um, and we break polyhydramnios up into mild, which represents 65 to 70% of cases, moderate, 20% of cases, and severe, which is less than 15% of cases. Uh, the causes of polyhydramnios most commonly is idiopathic. However, when there is an etiology, it's usually due to some type of fetal anomaly or maternal diabetes. Those anomalies, when broken down, are usually due to one, swallowing issue, so thinking about GI obstructions, neuromuscular issues, or cranial facial issues, or excess urine production, which is less likely. So something like a renal or urinary issue, a cardiac issue, or osmotic diuresis. Evaluation really should be a detailed anatomy to look for any type of fetal abnormality or any type of reason for high cardiac output to see if there's a reason behind the polyhydramnios. And then once that's done, we need to counsel the patient that while in most cases, mild polyhydramnios is not usually associated with fetal abnormality or neonatal abnormality, severe polyhydramnios is associated with an increased risk of fetal anomaly as high as 20 to 40% and risk of neonatal abnormality of 10%. And so should be delivered at a tertiary care center in the event that there is a neonatal abnormality. Management of polyhydramnios in pregnancy really is not much unless it becomes severe enough to cause maternal respiratory compromise, significant discomfort, or concerns for preterm labor. These are likely the cases that have some sort of underlying ideology, so you definitely need to pay attention to them, but amnia reduction can be done in order to reduce the amount of fluids, counseling the patient, though, that it is likely to recur. Indomethacin has been studied and can decrease fetal urine output, but preterm infants exposed to indomethacin in utero have decreased neonatal output and elevated serum creatinine, so indocin is not recommended for the sole purpose of decreasing amniotic fluid. Otherwise, with respect to antepartum management, polyhydramnios is associated with birth weight over 4,000 grams in 15 to 30% of cases, and so should be evaluated from that perspective. And reports of whether perinatal mortality is increased with idiopathic polyhydramnios have overall been inconsistent, and so there's no recommendation that is standing with respect to fetal surveillance, special delivery timing, or anything else based on idiopathic polyhydramnios alone. All right, so I think that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreeObserverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreeObserverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, go ahead and go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreeObserverCoffee. You can find the Rosh Review Question of the Week, show notes for this episode, as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, creativesovercoffee.com. And if you have an idea for another episode, have a mistake that you found and want to correct us, or just want to give us a shout out, go ahead and email us, creativesovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.